So today's Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may, you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted, uh, avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to Israel, the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Okay, and with that, we finish Galatians. Okay, so if you've dropped in at church this morning and you're visiting, welcome. You've come right at the end of a series, so you've got a lot of uh, processing to do to get up to speed, but uh, hopefully we'll get there. If you've been with us throughout the series, I wonder how you found it. Uh, we've heard the Apostle Paul expressing both astonishment and outrage that the Galatian churches that he founded so quickly deserted the gospel that he had preached to them and then went and accepted another message. Well, <clears throat> Paul calls them to account for this and calls them back to the gospel of grace. After listening to Paul now for five chapters of theological argument, what's your assessment? Now, is Paul really just theologically nitpicking is he splitting hairs over matters that really don't matter for decent people? Is this just a storm in a teacup? Because practically, when it comes down to it, does it really make a difference which gospel we believe so long as people behave themselves and treat one another decently? Well, it's a tremendous thing we had the last chapter. Practically speaking, does it make a difference which gospel we believe? Absolutely, it does. In fact, 
we're going to see there's a direct connection between what we believe, the, the gospel we believe, you know, the, the, the news about how in the end we sinners can become right with God. Is it through God's grace or is it through our own religious zeal or effort? There's a direct connection between which gospel we hold to and then the sorts of people we're going to end up being and then the sort of life that we'll experience in church together. Direct correlation. You believe in your own efforts, you believe in law keeping for your religious credentials. What happens is that you're going to end up looking down upon other people to puff yourself up. And that will result in judgmentalism and division, fighting and devouring each other, chapter 5, verse 15, or at the end of last week's passage, provoking and envying each other. However, if you believe the gospel of grace, then we ourselves become changed from within. And this flows out to a wonderful experience of church life together. So practically, does it matter which gospel we believe? Practically, yes, it really does. It really does, because it makes a difference. Now, I'm gonna recap, because I'm not assuming that everyone is totally on board with the last five, five chapters of Galatians. So. Here's a hand gesture for each chapter. You ready? I want you to do this with me. Okay, chapter one. <coughs> right, chapter two, fist to the heart. Chapter three, fists out front. Okay, chapter four, hands together like this. Chapter five, now we've got three, ready? Arm up, hands on hips, and then arms swinging. All right, hey, hey. All right. And then chapter six, it's palms up like this, okay? All right, here we go, chapter one. I am astonished oh, that you're so quickly deserting God and turning to a different gospel. Ay, ay, ay. All right, chapter two. Because my gospel, Paul says, came straight to me from the Lord Jesus himself. I didn't make it up. So who has bewitched you? Everything you have, the spirit, your status as children of Abraham comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through the law. So, oh sorry, that was fist out front. That was fist out front. I did it wrong. That was more fighty, all right? Then chapter four is the, oh, sorry, I get it wrong. He says, I'm pleading with you, I'm pleading with you. Don't abandon me or my gospel because God's blessing has never, ever come by human effort, always by God's grace and promise. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't give in to the law. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, of course, in all this, Paul's been hammering out the gospel of grace and life in the Spirit. But what does this look like practically? Hands up, for starters, carry one another, right? I say for starters because most of chapter six, you might have picked up, is packed full of application. So full, in fact, it's very hard to see the, the unifying thread that sort of runs through the chapter that hang, everything hangs on. If I was to ask you, what do you think is the unifying thread that runs through the chapter? I wonder what you'd say. Because if you look at the the passage, in verse one, he starts talking about what to do if someone's caught in a sin. Sean, behave yourself. <laughs> then in verse two, the need to carry one another's burdens. Then, of course, the need to carry each other's 
uh, carry your own load, which is a bit weird given he said carry each other's burdens. And then he says you ought to pay your pastors, which is lovely he mentions that, but we wonder why. And then there's a warning about giving into the flesh. Then there's the need to do good. Then he's telling us that he's writing in large letters, which is odd. Um, and then there's this bit on the cross and circumcision, which is embarrassing. And then he finishes off by saying, don't let people pick on me, and a generic sign-off. So it looks like Paul has threaded different colored beads on some sort of string, but what's the string? Okay, would anyone like to have a go at suggesting what you think is the thread that everything hangs off here? What's the unifying thing? Does anyone want to have a go? And I won't slam dunk you, you'll be very brave for even volunteering a suggestion. We would all be helped by it. Love. Love. Good one. Any other thoughts? Grace. Grace. Love, grace, importance of church family. The gospel. Mm, okay. All right. The clue is given in the, first, in the two verses which speak to us as brothers and sisters. These are the first and the last verse. First one, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And then the last verse, if you look, verse 18, it finishes with what sounds like this generic send-off, but it's much more than that. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. He mentions the spirit twice. The spirit and then your spirit. There's, okay. The bookend verses, which bracket all the application in between, give us the thread that makes sense of what Paul says. And that is, the need to live out the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, namely the spirit of grace. That does come to us, Sally, in the gospel. Well done. Okay. But it's, it's, it's living out through God's spirit, in our spirits, it's living out grace towards one another. That's the grace has to be the operating principle in our lives. Can't miss that if you're a Christian. All Christians depend upon God's grace. In fact, every Christian will delight in God's grace. And then as we delight, we let ourselves be transformed by God's grace and then we display God's grace towards Others. That's what it means to live by the Spirit, to be saved by grace, and that means to increasingly then relate with grace towards other people. That's the life principle that runs through this chapter. Everything here is an outflowing of grace. Now, what practical difference does the gospel of grace and life in the Spirit make? Okay. Well, it changes how we think about our church family, Rachel. Our goal in life and the cross of Christ. Okay, we're gonna go through those three. First of all, our church family, verses one to six. Verse one tells us what to do if someone is caught or overtaken by a sin that's controlling them. So suppose it becomes clear that someone here has an addiction they're struggling with, um, alcohol or gambling, a chocolate, does anyone have a chocolate addiction? <laughs> or wealth accumulation? 
Or maybe it's idolatry when our need for health or wealth actually becomes so obsessive that it stops us meeting with one another. It becomes the main thing we think about. I can't go to church because I'm going to the gym. I've got sport, so I won't meet. I'll give more attention to that than I will to my church family, right? What do you do? Well, you don't look down on them with a pharisaical sense of superiority because, of course, we all need God's grace as well. And neither do we shame people by reporting them or pointing it out, pointing out their sin in front of the whole congregation. We don't dob them into the pastor and let them deal with it, all right? We who are spiritual, now that could mean the pastor, but you know, it's the con- in the congregation. We who are spiritual, that is, those who through the Spirit have a track record in their own lives of addressing sin, of crucifying their own sinful desires, and who are now showing the fruit of the Spirit and the grace of Christ in their lives. Evidence of the Spirit working in them, and they working with the Spirit. We who are spiritual should restore them. The aim is not for them to be squashed or shamed, but for them to be restored to be freed from their sin. Now, please notice the assumptions. It is actually possible to stop sinning, to break a habit, to break an addiction. It is not inevitable that we'll always just give in to what our sinful desires prompt us to. However, it's realistic. If we're stuck, and we can be stuck, we need help. You can't actually get out by yourself. You need help, the help of your brothers and sisters. And the way in which we are to restore someone else is gently. Okay, that means with grace and humility, knowing that we too are sinners and realising we too have actually been stuck before and we need other other people to help us. Gently realising that it'll take time and doing it with kindness and patience, aware that we too are a work in progress and that we only make gains because of God's grace enabling us. Now, of course, in a church body, that's going to require vulnerability. It's going to require knowing one another to be able to share deeply, that is, uh, sharing beyond superficialities. So we actually have relationship with one another. So we need to build that. You need to invest in people to build that. but it requires having their interest as your concern. So do you know someone who's stuck in a sin? Are you the person who could help restore them? Are you stuck in a sin? And if so, does anyone know it? Have you brought up the courage to seek out someone who is spiritual, who you feel safe with? Okay, this is what life is like for people who live by the Spirit. This is what we do for one another. Well, what if you're not stuck in a sin but just loaded down and overcome by life's burdens? Verse 2, carry one another's burdens and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Again, it's worth recognising we're not invincible. None of us are. There will be times in every one of our lives when uh, the circumstances of life conspire to just make us burdened. We cannot carry the load. We'll be broken if we try. You know, stuff happens which leaves us distressed and unable to cope. Um, Sudden illness, chronic illness, 
financial stress, or there's grief, losing someone, or ongoing physical pain, or mental illness, or relationship breakdown, or you've lost your job suddenly. Things happen, don't they? And we're not meant to soldier through alone. You know, all of us at some time or other will need friends who draw alongside us, not to solve us, right? But they can help carry the burden. Now, what is Paul not saying? He's not saying that this then is a license. If you've got any little responsibility or issue, you should rely on someone else at church to do it for you. It's not saying that. Verse five, he says, each one should carry their own load. But the word there is different to the word burden spoken of in verse two. The word load describes a pack you can carry on your back. Okay, each of us has things. We're responsible, you know. We've got things we have to deal with. But a burden is different. That means weight or a heavy load. It's too heavy to carry by yourself. And the wonderful thing about church is that we have a family. We have a family of brothers and sisters who are growing in their own appreciation of the grace shown to them, God's kindness to them. And then they are being transformed by his spirit to think beyond themselves and to want to show grace to others and to do to others what Jesus himself did. Now, what did Jesus do for us? Well, when Jesus saw someone who was burdened, instead of walking on by because they weren't his problem, he was instead, and this is the amazing thing, he was actually drawn to them. This is the heart of Christ. He gravitated towards those who were overwhelmed. Um, he drew alongside them constantly in his life. He was drawing alongside those who were burdened. And he was transferring their burdens, sickness, disability, demon possession, even sin, he, upon himself. He transferred it upon himself. Now, of course, we cannot carry uh, or transfer the, sorry, we can't transfer the burden entirely upon, of someone else entirely onto ourselves like Jesus did. He's unique in that way. But we can approach someone with the same attitude of grace to help carry their burden with them, to carry their load. This is to fulfill the law of Christ, says Paul. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, the great thing about being at church is uh, there are plenty of other people who can pick up the slack if there's um, people who are burdened. I don't have to. All right. Maybe you're the one who prefers to just walk on by. Maybe you're like the priest or the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see someone else beaten up and you think they're not my problem. They're someone else's problem. Except grace changes the whole way we even think about ourselves. Verse three, if anyone thinks he is something when they're not, they deceive themselves. None of us who've received grace from Christ are above doing what Christ did in drawing alongside sinners. None of us ought to think, oh, that doesn't apply to me, okay? But neither then should we just think, oh, it's up to me to carry everyone's load, okay? We shouldn't compare ourselves with others who maybe are able to carry more than us and think, oh, I'm not doing as much as them. Some of us have more or less opportunity depending on the circumstance or stage in life. You know, a young mum who's got little kids to look after or a person who's got mental illness 
and is out of work because of it, or um, you know, someone caring for their aged parents, they have less capacity to lend a hand to another needy person than someone who's you know, okay and they just don't have any needy dependents. We will have different capacities to help at different times in our lives because we'll go through seasons when we're more or less able to lend a hand. And that's why verse four, each one should test their own actions. You're not comparing yourself with someone else, but just thinking about yourself. You've got to test your own actions. Am, am I being helpful as I can? And then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Taking pride in yourself, it's not saying I'm, I'm like boasting in arrogance before God, that's not that sin of pride. It's just saying, no, given my circumstances, given what I have capacity to do, I was able to help and I did it. I'm glad, okay? The point is that grace changes how we think about our church family. The one caught in sin, one another when we're burdened, ourselves, and even our instructor, verse six, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, this sounds like payment for services rendered, right? Everyone who comes to church has to pay because you're all receiving instruction, <laughs> all right? Um, it's not using that language. The word share is the same word for fellowship. And it's reflecting a reality that we're all interdependent. None of us are independent. So I, who am instructing you at the moment, I need to receive instruction from other people and share with them. And the, the sharing idea is that it picks up on this idea of fellowship. Just as teaching and listening is an act of fellowship, so also is giving and receiving support. It's part of living out grace in, a, in the life of the church family. That's very different to um, a church that's ruled by legalism, okay? Um, this whole picture is different. Legalism which puffs up and condemns others, which withholds love and never stoops to offer to share. That sort of church destroys one another and pulls apart, but it's very different to life in the spirit. Okay, next, grace and life in the spirit changes our goal in life, verses seven to 10. The goal, according to seven to 10, is described in terms of sowing and reaping. Now, I'm not a farmer. You've got John Stafford there, John's a farmer. So f forgive me, John, if I get anything wrong here, <laughs> okay. I understand enough of agriculture to know that you can't reap what you don't sow. To reap a harvest, you have to first sow the seed. You have to put in the right seed. If you want to harvest wheat, you put in wheat seeds. You don't put in guava seeds, right? Okay. And then you have to put in seeds of good quality, not poor quality. If you plant poor quality seed, you won't get a good quality crop. And then you need Lots of seeds, right seeds, good seeds, lots of seeds. You can't get a whole crop by just tossing a handful of seeds down in a paddock. You need lots. Okay, now, apply this. Imagine the field is your life, okay, and Jesus has purchased the field. You belong to him, and he has given you the spirit. You have all the resources to be able to reap a crop. Okay, the crop is eternal life, and what can you sow? Well, what you sow 
what you can give now are your thoughts and your actions. Okay. But what sort of seeds, what sort of thoughts and actions are you going to plant? In your thoughts and actions, are you going to sow so as to please the spirit or your sinful desires? Now, we all have sinful desires. Don't beat yourself up because you have sinful desires. All of us do. That's, that will remain with us until Jesus comes back. But having sinful desires and being tempted from within is not the same as sinning. Okay? Giving in to the sinful desires, that's sinning. You shouldn't feel guilty because you have sinful desires. You feel guilty if you've sinned, right? There's a difference. And it's not the case that we are destined to always give in because you have the Spirit if you believe in Jesus. And the Spirit has set you free from the control of the sinful desires. We still feel their pull, right? And often it'll be very strong and the temptation will feel almost overwhelming. But we're not controlled by them anymore. You can actually resist. Last week, chapter five, verse 16, what did it say? Walk by the Spirit and then you will not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. Now this week, it's the same thing in agricultural terms. You sow to please the Spirit, not our sinful nature. So our goal in life is to sow such thoughts and actions in the field of our life that on the day of Christ, we will reap the harvest of eternal life. Because when Jesus comes back, he won't expose us as a sham, okay? We won't be outed as the hypocrites who only really paid him lip service, but there was nothing real going on there. Now, why does Paul tell us this? Well, I think he tells us because he knows us and he knows our sinful nature. He knows that perverse thought that can enter our mind that I bet has entered yours, that because Christ has died for all of our sins, therefore we can give in to whatever sinful desire we have because now we've got a get out of jail free card. Has that ever occurred to you? Well, to this Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. If in our lives we spend it paying really lip service to the gospel of grace, what we're doing is we, that is if we keep on giving into our sinful nature, what we're doing is we are offending the Holy Spirit, him. We are offending him and we are shutting ourselves off from him. And if that becomes a lifelong pattern, if that becomes the template, the algorithm of your life, right, then we will have sowed to please our flesh and from our flesh will reap destruction. Paul says, do not be deceived on this. God cannot be mocked. He's not up for a sham marriage with us, lip service only, but no substance. 
He says, however, if we spend our lives consciously trying to please God the Spirit by being obedient to him in our thoughts and actions, through practice, what we're doing is we are sowing to please the Spirit. And then he says, from the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. What if I slip up once? Okay, you repent. You listen to the Holy Spirit. You experience his grief. You confess. You go back to the gospel. Christ died for my sins. And you amend your life. And for every one of us, that will be a daily routine. That is the normal life of being a Christian. You resist the sinful desires of the flesh. You sow your thoughts and actions so as to please the Holy Spirit. Christ's grace, in other words, is meant to come out. So our goal in life, you see, changes from what we thought it was. <laughs> okay, it is not to sow to please all our sinful inner promptings. Now, that's what most people think is their goal in life. Instead, it is to give ourselves in our thoughts and actions to strive to please God's spirit so as to reap eternal life. Now, that's for ourselves. This sowing and reaping principle also applies to our good works towards others. Verse nine, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, did you know that the reason God saved you was so that you would do good works for others. Did you know that? In other words, it's not just about you. He saved you for the sake of others. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Or Titus chapter two. I love this, Christ himself gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purchase for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Okay, in our lives we ought to be looking for opportunities to do good to others. That's a goal in life. Especially people at church. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us, let us do good to all people, especially those from the family of faith. Now, we, we, we have, this is a growth area for us, <laughs> I think, right? We can do more good in people's lives. Um, and I know this church in the past has done many wonderful things. Uh, but we ought to be on the lookout for chances to do this. This is why in our vision statement, you know, it's about loving God, loving one another, loving everyone. We seek to be a blessing to all people, not just ourselves, although this body has our priority. Now, this has a thousand applications, and all through our lives, God presents us with chances to do good to all people, especially the family of faith. The driver of this is the gospel of grace, because we know that God, through Christ, has done good for us. And therefore, we think, how can I do good to others? Our goal in life, therefore, let me sum up, is to sow now so as to reap later. Sow our thoughts, actions, good works now so that later we reap a harvest of eternal life. We are trying to live a life consistent with our faith. Finally, the gospel of grace and life in the spirit changes how we think of the cross of Christ. We haven't got time to go through all of verses 11 to 18. Paul grabs the pen from the scribe he's been dictating the letter to. Now he's writing in his own hand. He's now writing with really big letters. We think, strange. All right, 
Why does he say this? Partly to emphasize the importance of what he's about to say, partly he's having a dig against the false teachers who came in who wanted just to promote the outward marks of religion, like Jewish circumcision. And he's kind of saying, well, if you've bought into those outward signs, look what large letters, letters I'm writing with now in my own hand. I can do it too. <laughs> he says, you know, these people, these false teachers who've come amongst you, they hate the cross of Christ. The cross tells us that none of the outward signs of religion do anything. We need the cross because religion, with its laws, with its human efforts, with its outward signs, doesn't work. Legalism does not turn away God's anger. Legalism cannot buy us out of sin's curse. Legalism cannot work in ourselves to restrain sin. It inflames sin. Legalism doesn't create unity. Legalism pulls apart and divides and destroys. Legalism doesn't promote love or gentleness, but hatred and judgmentalism and condemnation. But the cross of Christ, the vehicle of grace, works point for point in the areas that law and legalism fail. The cross of Christ turns away God's anger. The cross of Christ buys us out of sin's curse. The cross of Christ restrains sin because you realize the cost of being redeemed from sin and then you, you think, I want to live a life in conformity with God's love. The cross of Christ humbles and creates unity because it levels us. We're all on the same playing field. We all need God's grace. The cross of Christ actually brings us grace and fosters love and gentleness. The cross is everything. And that's why Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. What's he mean? Well, he's saying the things that the world lives for, I don't live for anymore. It's nothing to me. It's dead to me. You know, worldly privilege. Well, that is nothing when you have the privilege of eternal life. Worldly status is nothing when you are a child of Abraham and you're a son or daughter of God. Worldly wealth is nothing when you are a fellow heir with Christ of the universe. Riches money cannot buy. It just means nothing. The world's been crucified to me. And then he says, and I to the world. What's he saying there? He says, I'm not going to play my life according to the worldly you know, dictates of how I should live. The algorithm of worldly religion. He finishes by saying, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus the physical scars of being whipped 39 times, of um, being stoned and left for dead, of being beaten up, of being shipwrecked. He's a scarred man now. You know, your false teachers go on about circumcision. It's a very impressive little mark on the body. You think God's impressed with, you have no idea. Okay, does it really make a difference which gospel we believe so long as 
people behave themselves and treat one another well? Well, the reality is yes, because people won't behave themselves and treat one another well. However, in a community infused by grace, formed by grace, that lives out grace in the power of God's spirit, it's radically different. The gospel that Paul received was not something he made up. It was revealed to him by Jesus and he's passed it on. And it is God's good news to us today of his grace towards us in Christ, through the cross, by the power of the Spirit. And Paul is now arguing that that gospel, which you must hang on to, has to come out. It will change how we think about our church family. Grace will be the tune that we're humming in our head when we relate to one another. It will change our goal in life, sowing, sowing, sowing by God's grace to please the Spirit and reap a harvest of eternal life. It will change how we view the cross. We will treasure it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this letter. By your Spirit, write it on our hearts. May we, who've accepted Christ, we pray that everyone here would have, who know the power of your forgiveness, who know the indwelling of your Spirit and that Christ lives in our hearts through faith, may we be transformed by your grace and may it come out in everything, in the way we treat one another, how we think about ourselves,